Hi, my name is Pastor Tony Garbarino of Providence Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you tuned in to hear a message from God's Word. If you'd like to find more information about us, please go to providencefw.org, providencefw.org. We seek to be Bible-based, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered. So please enjoy now this message. Thanks for coming. Our New Testament reading is going to be the text for the sermon this morning, uh, Sim, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and then I will pray for the Lord's blessing on the hearing and the reading and the preaching of that word <clears throat> before we do so. So let's now take a moment um, to ask the Lord's blessing upon this, his word. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we come again to you this morning to hear from you. We praise you that you have given us such a rich treasure to know what to think and how to think, that you've given us a sure word regarding basic truths and profound truths. We thank you, Lord, and confess that this is just that, your word, breathed out by you and given to us as your covenant people. And yet, Lord God, we are so often hard of hearing. And so we ask that your gracious spirit would grant us grace this day, that you give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready and willing to believe and receive. We pray, Lord God, that you would magnify your Son in our midst at this time, and that the good news of the gospel, as it is presented in him, would come to us, Lord, that we would, be, that we would find hope in life in believing. And so, dear Lord, we ask grace for your people and grace for the one who speaks on your behalf, in order that you that your name might be magnified in all the earth. It's in Christ's name that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Here now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves or our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory... In the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Because of the glory that surpasses it, uh, for, it, is, it for it was being brought to an end, came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze, might not gaze at, the, uh, at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted 
because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Word of the Lord. May be seated. One of the things that we've seen as we look through the New Testament, and of course, as we looked at 2 Corinthians, is that the coming of Christ is the key event in redemptive history. Before Christ came, God's people related to God how? They did so through the covenant God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. With the coming of Jesus Christ, through his perfect obedience and death-killing death, the law of God is now fulfilled. It's fulfilled. And an age, a new age of redemptive history has dawned. Uh, an age with, which is known, we know as the New Covenant Era, the age of the Holy Spirit. And the fading glory of the Old Covenant has given way to the unending, unfading glories of the New. <clears throat> and so understanding redemptive history, right, the history of redemption, how God works in his people throughout creation in terms of promise, right, old covenant, and fulfillment, new covenant, right? This understanding is, is crucial for our understanding of Scripture, of all of Scripture, when we read our Bibles. And it's significant here that in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul again and again gives this repeated and emphatic contrast between the old and the new. Right, the old and the new, the contrast that he shows. Uh, Paul is teaching here us about the nature of his office and the gospel ministry, which is carried out by the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of the Corinthians were looking for and looking to humanly things, things of this life, uh, like letters of recommendation, for what? For legitimacy, for approval and validity rather than seeking those things and acknowledging them that they're from God, as given in his word. And of course, we too need to see the dangers of this very thing. Uh, Paul moves in his discussion, as he's working through, from the point of the, the error of human approval and human confirmation and con, uh, com, commendation, from that he moves into the greater point where he contrasts the old and the new. And we see in this contrast, right, a number of things as, it's broke, as we look at this chapter 3. We see the contrast of geography, right, location, a uh, contrast of the effects, and a contrast of glory. Right? Geography, effects, and glory. This is a contrast that we see here. And these contrasts flow from the reality of Christ's coming and fulfilling all these things, all of the things which the Old Covenant pointed to uh, in Christ, God's promises have been fulfilled. We see here, too, uh, as prophesied by the prophets, right? Jeremiah, Joel, Ezekiel, the coming of the Holy Spirit was uh, one of the great indicators, the great clues, the great signs that the new covenant era had dawned. And that's what we see here, Paul talking about. Just as we've seen in the past number of weeks, we see this morning that Paul continues to defend his 
office, right, against those false prophets, those who were attacking him, those critics in Corinth. And Paul contrasts the old covenant ministry of Moses with the new covenant established by Jesus, the mediator of that covenant, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The distinction between these two covenants is fundamental. It's a fundamental element of Christian theology, of our understanding of Scripture and God and His working in His creation. Right? That's why we call it covenant theology. Right? Another uh, nickname for the theology that we hold and our approach to Scripture. It's covenant theology. We see this focus here. It's core to our understanding and comprehension if we're to understand Scripture. So we look at verse 1, and Paul asks the Corinthians a rhetorical question. Right? It's something that Paul does quite often as we look at uh, his letters that are um, preserved for us. Uh, he does this very often. He asks questions that don't require an answer, right? A rhetorical question. It's because they have an obvious answer. He's making a point. And he says in verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Right? And it's, it's the case that the early church, right, they would do this. They would, they would, uh, letters of recommendation were given to members of a church to show when they traveled places that people didn't know them, other churches, that they were members in good standing. Right? That's a phrase that we hear and we use often <clears throat> in our discussion. It's uh, part of the common parlance of uh, ecclesiology, right? the way the church works, members in good standing. And that just means there's no scandal or discipline that they're undergoing. They're not being uh, corrected um, you know, for, or anything like that. They're in good standing. And when believers visited a church where people didn't know them, they could present these letters from their elders in their church. And this helped, of course, especially in the early church, the hostility towards believers, the persecution. It helped towards hospitality and to protect the integrity of the supper, to protect the church, and so on. So this was a needed thing. Paul says essentially here, I don't need an external letter of recommendation or a reintroduction because the internal work of the Spirit in your hearts is all the endorsement that is needed. Right? Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Right? So the changed lives of the, of the Corinthians are proof that Paul is a, a minister of the New Covenant. And so now, in this new covenant era, in the new covenant, the internal effects of the gospel on the heart takes precedent over a person's external credentials. Moralism, and really all other systems, religion, religious systems, the way that they, their system teaches is that change happens from the outside in. Right? Be moral, be good, and it'll change, then that will change your heart. Right? Change your behavior and you will experience the grace of God. Right? The external in impacts their standing before the Lord in their belief. But in contrast, the gospel says that by the work of the Spirit, transformation happens from the inside out. Right? The heart is what changed and that changes behavior. That changes who you are, who we are fundamentally. Because of the grace of God, right? because of the grace of God, you can be sure that the Spirit is working in your heart to bring about change, growth, sanctification, we call it. This is so important, brothers and sisters. We understand this. We should never get that reversed. The Spirit works inside out. And our sufficiency and our uh, competence doesn't come from the external working, but from God. 
It's a work of the Lord. And therefore, we should not base our position or our standing on outward performance. Right? That's not the way that Scripture tells us it works. Instead, we can rest in our position before God because of what He has done, knowing that the inward heart work of the Spirit leads necessarily, naturally, to genuine, visible change in our lives. We must rem uh, remove ourselves from this, you know, the, the, the lying works treadmill, right? We get in just work, 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 thinking that we can work our way into some uh, better standing before the Lord. We must remove ourselves from the false thinking that our standing before God is a matter of our external meriting. Christ has done what we could not. And so now we live out of that glorious provision and accomplishment. We live out of it, not in to get to it. And how wonderful that is, brothers and sisters, as you have experienced this and you know this, how wonderful it is to be freed from the bondage of sin, but also from the bondage of working to rest in the Lord. We are in the Lord. And out of that fact, we live. That's a glorious gospel truth. I've said it before. See who you are in the Lord. See who you are. Now be who you are. Be who you are. Live lives. Live your life out of the gratitude of the glorious truth and reality of who you are united to, united to Christ. We don't live out of, I'm sorry, we live out of the rest won by Jesus for us. We don't work into it. And that makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between law and gospel. The very thing that Paul is contrasting in this passage. And so Paul goes on as he defines and defends his apostolic office in verse 3. Right? And in doing so, he turns, it's the main point of this chapter. And that is that the new covenant is superior over the covenant made with Israel at Sinai. The new covenant is better. It's superior to the old covenant. And listen to how Paul gives a contrast of location or geography. Right? He says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. Human hearts, right? The location has changed. The geography is contrasted there, from stones to hearts. Notice the contrast. That which is between that which is external, again, stone and ink, God's written word, and that which is internal, the Holy Spirit and the human heart, right? Paul is not saying here, there's been many errors that have been taught about this. Paul is not saying that if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need the written word. It's not what he's saying. That's not the contrast. He's not saying that the written word is secondary or less important than the Holy Spirit's working. I'm not saying that. And indeed, the view that the Spirit replaced the Word was a false view that crept up during the time of the Protestant Reformation. Right? Some people at that time claimed that they didn't need the authority of the church or church tradition, uh, ecclesiology, right? the workings of the church was useless, it was done away with. They didn't need to prove anything that they did or taught from the Bible, from God's Word, because that era had gone away, they thought. And they taught that the Holy Spirit had replaced the written word, right? the external stone tablets, ink and paper. They taught that the Spirit gave believers new revelation and deposited truth directly into their hearts. And they said that this internal revelation was superior to the written word, and therefore the Bible was no longer necessary. And if this sounds familiar, 
Um, you may not have known about that at the time of the Protestant Reformation, but we still see this false belief being taught today. Right? Whenever someone claims to have received some kind of direct revelation or a word from the Lord, which comes apart from Scripture, disconnected from Scripture, it doesn't have an address in the Bible. Right? It's the same teaching. It's the lineage of that teaching. It's very common, as I'm sure you know, for televangelists or word of faith teachers as well as certain other groups, uh, right? We probably don't have to look very hard, even near us, for individuals to claim that God speaks to them directly apart from Scripture. And they say that the New Covenant and the Holy Spirit has replaced the Old Covenant and the law, even the Bible, because the Spirit inside does away with the need for any external authority of the written Word. And I hope you can see how awful that is and how wrong that is. This is not what Paul is teaching here. It's not his point. What he's saying is that that, that was external, right? His point is that what was external, the law, is now written on the human heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Spirit doesn't replace God's law in the Bible. Rather, Jesus Christ what? Fulfills the law. It doesn't nullify or do away with it. Right? Remember what he said. Do not... He, the Lord himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the Holy Spirit applies all that was promised in the Old Covenant to us, to believers. Right? This is very important. The Old Covenant isn't tossed aside, isn't thrown away by Christ's coming, or the Spirit's indwelling. The New Covenant actually is the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Covenant. It's not new in the sense of being something completely new as in a different kind. Rather, the new covenant is new in that it is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And that it's much greater in clarity and in the blessings that it gives. All those things which the old covenant pointed to are fulfilled in the new. And so Paul doesn't put the word against the spirit as though they are opposed to one another. Rather, he's arguing that with the coming of Jesus, the promised New Covenant is now a glorious reality. It's fulfilled. Right? The scripture, the history of redemption, his word is not chopped up and disconnected. There is consistency throughout. It's going somewhere. The New Covenant is superior in every way to the Old Covenant. Promises have become a reality. And Paul is saying that this living Christian church in the middle of a pagan city, Corinth, is evidence of the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old Covenant. That the, that the Corinthians are there shows that they are a letter from Christ. Right? This shows the radical difference in redemptive history between the Old Covenant carved on tablets of stone and the New Covenant which is written on the hearts of justified sinners. Right? And notice again the contrast of location. Right? The law written or engraved on tablets of stone at Sinai belong to the old order, right? Promise, type, shadow, pointers. And the old order has been surpassed. Paul just says, has said in 2 Corinthians 3, it's been surpassed by the coming of Jesus Christ. Promise and fulfillment, right? His coming establishes the new covenant and launches the age of the Holy Spirit as we see poured out on the church <clears throat> in Acts. This is why it's superior to the old, right? And this is why Paul will go on to say in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ 
towards God, right? That's, that which was promised is now a reality. And where are some of these places where this was prophesied long ago? Well, Jeremiah chapter 31 uh, tells us, speaks of this. Jeremiah, of course, is the prophet around the middle of the second century B.C. Uh, Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the promise that we have, right? See the contrast in geography, even contrast in location, even in that passage from Jeremiah 31, right? Mount Sinai in the heart, right? From the old covenant on stone to hearts within his people, hearts made new. So Paul proclaims these days have now come. They've come because Jesus has come. Paul is not confident in himself, but in his message, Right? He is an apostle, a sent one. Sent with what? The message of the gospel from Jesus himself. He doesn't rest in the fading glory which has been surpassed. Right? Jeremiah's new covenant is now a reality. It's a reality. And in verse 5, Paul further discusses why his own weakness and his lack of rhetorical skills and slickness do not diminish the cause of Christ, the work of the ministry, the, God, the power of the gospel. His weakness does not harm the message or the reality of the truth uh, about which he speaks. We just saw, if we back up a few verses in 2 Corinthians 2, 16, right, he asked the question, again, a rhetorical question, who is sufficient for these things? Well, not any man on his own, in his own being, in his own motivation and power. No man. Only those sent by God with the message of Christ not those pseudo-prophetes, right? the false prophets who peddle God's word for profit, for reputation, for power. And Paul says in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 2, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as from God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And then back to, chapter, uh, to verse 5 of our passage this morning. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Not from us, it's from God. And this is Paul's reply to his enemies there, those who would attack him. This is his response. When Paul speaks of being sufficient in ourselves, he's getting at the, a very important point, cru crucial. Right? The false prophets may indeed be eloquent, captivating speakers and performers. But all they have is what they are. Right? All they have is what they are. They must rely on those external things, rhetoric, eloquence, performance, and that which is fading away. Right? And when we compare this to Paul, right? physically weak and unimpressive Paul, he knows that his sufficiency comes from God, who's powerful, who does not fade away. By trusting in God and the power of the gospel, Paul's resources, even in his weakness, are unlimited. Right? They're unlimited. 
And this is an all-important result right, of that great event of redemptive history, the coming of Jesus Christ. Right? This Jesus who leads a triumphal procession and whose sacrifice is, sacrifice is that offering pleasing to God. And then listen to what Paul says in verse 6. He said that God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Right? Remember that when Paul was on his tour of Christian persecution before his conversion, he was called by God to be a servant, a minister of the new covenant. Right? This is that covenant of grace right, that we trace throughout Scripture from Genesis 3 and on. Right? First promise to Adam and then to Abraham and the, and the patriarchs, and then to Moses and David and Israel's prophets, and now fulfilled through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is the age to come, brought forward in time, become, uh, begun at Christ's first coming. Because it is the age of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant is written upon our hearts, right, internally. Not externally on tablets of stone like under the old covenant. Remember this two-covenant structure in Scripture. Right? This is how it's, it's, it's structured. They're like the, twin, the two engines that drive redemptive history. The new covenant is not like the old covenant, covenant of works promised, uh, promising blessing for obedience and curses, threatening curses upon disobedience. Yet at the same time, gives the gives believers no power whatsoever to obey any of its demands. And because the law can only demand, it does what? It, it puts, puts us under, under covenant curses and death. The letter kills, what Paul says. Letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, verse 6. Right? And here we see the contrast of effect. Right? One kills, brings death, the other gives life. Right? The old brings death, the new gives life. The law demands, therefore it condemns. The gospel gives us what the law demands, and therefore it brings life, do you see? This is why the new covenant is so massively superior to the old covenant, which has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And here we see the contrast between law and gospel in all of its glory and simplicity. We don't have time to get through the rest of this chapter. We'll finish next week. We'll stop there, but I wonder if you've not only comprehended this distinction, this contrast between life and death, law and gospel, not only comprehended it, but if you believed it, you believe what the Lord tells us here. I pray, dear friends, that even right now that you would see your failings to keep the law given in the Old Covenant. And that you would see right now that it, if it depends on you and your works, you are without hope. We are without hope if we're resting in our own selves. Because in ourselves, we, we fall what? Woefully short of the requirements of that law. The law for us, in our own efforts, kills. And I pray that the needle of the law would pierce your failing soul so that the thread of the gospel would make you whole. Not only do we need to recognize and admit that our own flesh-delivered law-keeping is abysmal, but also, brothers and sisters, that so often 
we find comfort in being on that law-keeping treadmill. Right? So often it is comfortable to us. The wheel of working. It's part of the distortion of sin in our hearts. We want something to do. We distrust the truth and freedom and simplicity of the gospel. Well, we must know, dear Christian, we are free from that wheel. We're free from that treadmill. If you are in Christ, you are free, dear Christian. Free from the guilt and bondage of sin, yes, but also from the crushing attempts to keep that law. Jesus kept the law. He's done it all for you. If you are not in Christ, I plead with you right now, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Believe, repent, be saved. Give yourself to this one who gave his life for sinners. Come and taste and see that he is altogether good and sweet and powerful. Come and partake of the fresh, refreshing waters, cleansing, salvation. Even now, he will make you free. You will be free indeed. And for you, dear Christian, know and believe and trust afresh this most important contrast, law, death, and gospel life. Come back again and again and come clear again and return to the truth and freedom of the gospel. Yes, heaven must be earned by works. And it was by Jesus, the works of Christ. He earned heaven for all those that entrust themselves upon him. Praise God if that is you, even right now, dear Christian. And this being the, this being the case, go freed and refreshed back into the world. Go with the love of Jesus and the freedom and glory of the gospel into a dead and dying world. Go and live for him. This is his commission to you. Live lives of gratitude and thanksgiving and delight in Christ, your Savior. And go living for him and taking him into that world, confident that he will indeed use you. He will use you by your mouth and by your living as you give yourself over in trust and surrender to him. And go confident that he will use you for his glory. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that exciting? That he would use us, pathetic as we are. And go knowing that as you fight and as you fall, that he has promised to be with you now and then and indeed forever unto glory. Your final home <clears throat> forever. Remember, dear Christian, rejoice, rehearse these truths, and recite them to the world. Go and live for Jesus. What a wonderful thing it is to be a believer, and what a wonderful commission that we have. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have re revealed yourself in this, your word to us. We give you thanks for Christ's perfection given to us, and that though we were sinners and rebels, you sought us and saved us, securing our sure redemption. We ask, gracious Lord, that you would continue to draw us near, especially those who need your covering. Lord, draw us to surrender and to faith, to rest upon you and to rest in you. Lord, we pray for your word as it goes out in the world, that it would have its full effect. Pray that you would bring your people in thereby. And Lord, we do pray that all the distractions and obstacles, uh, the cloud of confusion and 
uh, all the frustrating things and temptations of this life, that all these things would grow dim in the light and reality of your glory, and that we would see more and more clear that glory, and the glory of Christ and our union with him. May we believe and live our lives out of that reality, no matter what deters or challenges come. May this be our confession, and may we be assured of the victory won by Christ for us. And even this morning, fathers, we partake of the supper. May we revere and know him who has made us partakers of his kingdom by faith. Father, we pray for the congregation here of your people this morning as we encounter various struggles in this life, that we would fight to live in, in such a way that matches the profession of our lips. We pray, Father, for those suffering this morning, those who are under physical pain and suffering or spiritual pain and suffering. We ask that you would uh, grant them relief from those things and mercy and freedom. If it's your will, Lord, we pray, heal and restore them. Yet whatever your perfect will, we pray, Lord, draw them close unto you, that they would abide their suffering well, that they would know that they have a perfect, loving, gentle Lord who cares for them beyond all comprehension, who is the God of the resurrection of the dead and the certainty that they would be made new. Lord, we pray, grant to us to know the blessing of following your and loving your law. Lord, that, help us to know that we've been freed from the bondage of sin and death and freed to keep that law in your ways uh, in love and gratitude. Lord, may we live out of our newness in Christ. Would you pray for the, the households here represented, Lord, that you would, we ask that you would forgive our failure to faithfulness and our various roles that you've called us to. Grant to us that we would long to rightly be who you have made us in them. Pray for the husbands here this morning, Lord. We ask that you would help us to know and delight that you are a husband who loves your bride perfectly. Help us to love our wives in a way that reflects our Savior. We do pray for the wives as well. We pray that uh, they, as they reflect uh, uh, the reflection of the glorified church, would submit and obey to their husbands, as Christ did the Father. And as the church is called to obey their God and King, for the sole reason, because you are worthy, and you are their Lord and husband and father. Father, we pray for the parents this morning that, you would, uh, that uh, they would indeed love and nurture their children in the culture of the word, with reverence and delight in Christ as their mutual Savior, they and their children, and that our homes would be a very picture of the gospel in a world so contrary to and in need of truth. We pray, Lord, for the children that they would rejoice in their creator and sustainer and redeemer of their souls, increasingly for all of their life, that you would bless them and protect them. We pray for your people, Lord, whatever hardships we might endure in this life, that we would see you, our God, in our King, that you are faithful and good and gracious to us, and that you love us with a perfect love. Lord, we pray for those who are single here this morning. Grant, we pray, Lord, grant to them peace and joy in Jesus. And if it's your will, Lord, we pray, bring others into their lives, grant them godly relationships. We pray for all of us that we would rest upon Christ for our deepest needs, satisfaction of our souls, indeed the only satiation of our souls. We pray for our missionaries, Lord, as they work in faraway lands and even home missions. We pray that you would bless them in their works. We pray that the gospel would go forth through their efforts as you've called them and used them. Lord, sustain them, protect them. Give them, uh, give them a strong sense of, of their calling, Lord, and joy in the work that they're doing.
Grant success, Lord, as you bring your people in uh, through the preaching of the gospel. Lord, we do pray for the officers of this church as well. Here at Providence, we pray that you would uh, give them wisdom as they love and care for uh, your people here. Lord, bless them in their work, we pray. We pray for all of us, Lord. Be merciful unto us. Provide for our physical needs. Strengthen us spiritually. Keep us from growing satisfied. Keep us from being fearful. Strengthen us and conform us evermore into the image of our King, your Son. For it's in his mighty name that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, if you'd like more information uh, about Providence, if you're in the greater Fort Wayne area and would like to visit us, please go to our website, providencefortwayne.org. If you'd like to give, if you were blessed by this message, if you'd like to have more information about the faith or about growing in your faith, uh, we'd love for you to get connected with us. Thank you. We've set up a simple way for you to give to our church online. If you want to give a quick gift, enter an amount, select a fund, then enter your email address and your first and last name. Then enter your payment details and click Give. And that's it. We'll send a receipt to your email address. To use a saved payment method or manage a recurring donation, you'll want to log in. Click the Login button and we'll send a code to your phone or email account. Verify the code and you're in. Now your payment info is ready to go when you want to make a donation. To manage your giving details, switch over to the My Giving page. Here you'll see more ways you can give. You can also add a payment method, like a bank account or a debit card, set up a recurring donation, and view your giving history. To get started, visit our website or download the Church Center app in your Android or Apple App Store.